Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Super excited about this episode. We just finished recording it. Uh, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences and I, we talked about the intersection of usability and risk management. It was a wonderful conversation. Lots of good tidbits and, and pointers and tips uh, laced throughout this podcast. So please sit back and relax and grab a pen and paper or whatever device that it is that you use to take notes because there are quite a few items here that you're going to want to make note of. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. And I am super excited this morning. I've got my good friend, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences to join me once again on the podcast. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, John. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you and your audience today, as always. Absolutely. And, you know, folks, for those of you listening, Mike and I, uh, we always try to find topics that, well, will be interesting for <laughs> for discussion, but also timely and relevant. And I'm going to have to say, I think we found a good one today, Mike. And that topic is, we're going to talk about the intersection of usability and risk management. And let's just dive into it, because I think these topics, usability, risk management, there's well, risk management, you and I have obviously talked a great deal about in the past. We've got a lot of content. Mike's done webinars, has podcasts, other guides and content on this topic as well. But usability is not something we've really delved into too deeply. So let's just talk talk about usability first. What does that mean? You know, when you hear that term, what does it mean and how do I do it and what is how do I apply it and so on? So just, I guess, give kind of a 30,000 foot view of usability, Mike. Well, that's a great place to start, John. So just going to Google and typing in what is usability, here's what we find. The degree to which something is able or fit to be used. The degree okay. to which something is able or fit to be used. I'm not sure how useful that that definition of <laughs> usability is. So let me give you my definition of usability. Usability is, has everything to do with the user's ability to to use our product, in this particular case, our medical device, sure. in the way that it was designed, in the way that the engineers had intended it to be used. And there's a lot of interesting aspects of this that we're going to get into in this in this discussion. One of them is who is our user. Mm-hmm. In the uh, in, historically in the medical device community, usually the user is thought of as the physician or the surgeon or the nurse or perhaps uh, you know somebody who you know a medical professional of some kind. But now, John, as we've talked about before, more and more, the users of our device are the patient themselves. 
Um, of course, yeah. A growing trend for more and more devices, especially home-based devices, to be used directly by the patient. Mm-hmm. And in those cases, and perhaps we can give some examples later, but in those cases, I think usability and usability testing is even more important if the device is going to be used by a you know, John Q. Public sure. as opposed to a trained medical professional. So that's a, sort of a starting point uh, okay. in terms of usability. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that's very helpful. I, I know sometimes the, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around that sometimes people use synonymously. Things like usability and human factors and ergonomics, and I think there is a correlation. And I, I don't expect that we'll get too much into that today. But you know, where does the FDA stand on this topic of usability? I I, I know they have guidances and things of that nature. I know they've been big in human factors and, and things of that nature. But where do you think the FDA stands on the topic of usability? Well, it's an interesting question from a regulatory perspective, John. First of all, in terms of guidance, FDA has thus far issued 15 guidance documents in the area of usability testing or human factors, most of them coming from CDRH. Uh There are a couple from CEDAR and CBER. By the way, a topic of a more advanced discussion might be the usability issues around combination products. Oh, yeah. Um, but that's that's uh, and, and that's something that I'm getting more and more questions on. So FDA has put out a number of guidances, but most interesting to me is that all 15 of those guidances have come out with just within the last three or four years. Right. As a matter of fact, historically, FDA has not regulated the usability of medical devices because one could easily argue that how a physician uses a device is the practice of medicine. Mm-hmm. And of course, as we all know, FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. Right. This all changed with one precipitating event, one what I call a watershed moment in the history of the medical device industry. It was the, uh, as I refer to it, the infusion pump fiasco Uh that happened about seven or eight years ago. Long story short, there were some 80 recalls from infusion pumps from a variety of different manufacturers, largely because they were not being used properly. Mm -hmm. And this is why FDA issued now some 15 guidances in this general area. This is not something that was done before. And on a personal note, I might say I'm a little surprised that the industry has not pushed back on FDA to say without specific congressional authorization, you have no no business trying to regulate usability because it is the practice of medicine. Right. Now, I want to make sure that the audience doesn't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that usability is not important, and I'm not saying that we should not do usability or human factor or ergonomic studies. On the contrary, I think we definitely should. But to me, that's basic engineering. Right. And the question becomes, do we need you know, the FDA or our government telling us to do something that we all as engineers know we should be doing anyway? Right. It's, it's an excellent point. And I know, you know we... You mentioned some of the FDA perspectives on the topic of usability. Uh, it's also been a huge topic outside the U.S. as well. And you know, for those of you listening, uh, you might also want to check out the. There's an industry standard IEC six two three six six, which also delves into this topic of usability as well. And I know that's a big deal for products outside of Europe. To you know, a big question is, hey, did you address 62366. And it's very common, especially for 
uh, electrical medical devices, you know, there's an element of going through the uh, 60601 process to show electrical safety. There's there's a, a, a process of addressing usability and going through that as well. So it's it's bigger than just FDA. It's it's certainly uh, outside the, the U.S. borders as well. It's it's a topic that's hitting the world hot and heavy right now in the med device community. I think that's an excellent point, John, and yeah. a subtle nuance under the umbrella of international usability is the differences in usability of a given device mm-hmm. in different parts of the world because of cultural differences. Yeah. In other words, we all know that there are cultural differences in some places in the world it's customary to shake hands, in other places right. it's not, you know, language differences and so on. So this is probably beyond the scope of our conversation today, but one thing we should be keeping in mind when we talk about usability, especially usability around the globe, mm-hmm. is what kind of cultural differences do we need to factor in? You know, it might be customary, for example, for people in one part of the world to use a device one way, whereas people in another part of the world to use the same device in another way. So those are things that we need to take into account as well. Absolutely. And I think it gets back to your comment of prudent engineering. If I understand uh, the markets where my product will be used and the users in those markets, then, then I should be doing that anyway, right? Absolutely. That's exactly right. And just one other thing I would, I would add, John, in terms of the, uh, the regulatory and specifically the FDA view on usability, a common question that I get is, what's the difference between a usability study and a clinical trial? Yeah. And simply put, here's the way I like to differentiate them. In a clinical trial, the focus is on the patient. In a usability or in an ergonomic study, the focus is on the user. Now, as I said earlier, historically, the user was typically the physician or the surgeon, and the patient was the one that they were treating. Right. But nowadays, with more and more devices being designed and intended to be used by the patient themselves, there is no difference anymore. Mm-hmm. So in many of the devices that I'm working on now, the usability study and the clinical trial is exactly one and the same. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's, and I, I think that's, it's, it's kind of like that perception or that perspective is important here because like you said, the clinical trial, you're, you're looking at how does this product treat the condition or a diagnosis, a situation or, or whatever the case may be, you know, like that patient perspective. Usability is all about, I'll, I'll simplify it, at least in, in John's terms, usability is about all the steps and interactions that the user needs to go through, you know, turn it on, plug it in, do this, do that, all those things as about how the product works. It's, you know, I guess from my perspective, do you, well, maybe it's a question rather, do you see usability as really assessing whether or not the product address the the needs of the end user or more specifically address the and tackle the indications for use of that product do you see what's the correlation there well that's a good question john so if we if we bring in what the design controls tell us or, or remind us as as you know and as we've talked about before one of the basic tenets of the design controls is to make sure that we design our device to meet the needs of the user. Right. But now it comes back to the question, as I mentioned a moment ago, is who is our user? Is yeah. our user our physician or surgeon or nurse or pharmacist, or is our u- user the patient? Um, mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, in, in one of our previous discussions, John, 
we talked about the reprocessing fiasco where right. certain kinds of medical devices, uh, duodenoscopes, a type of endoscope, were not cleaned and reprocessed properly. And as a result, a number of people at UCLA and a few other places were, were made sick and in a few cases died because this, uh, they were not reprocessed right. properly. Well, if you have a medical device, a reusable medical device that is both designed as well as labeled to be reused, then it seems to me that one of your users needs to be the reprocessor. And mm -hmm. so clearly in those kinds of situations, we did not follow the regulation because we did not meet the needs of our intended user, in this particular case, the, the reprocessor. Right. So, you know, as we've talked about before, John, many people say, you know, we need to create new <laughs> regulation. Well, I really think we don't. I think we, we have enough regulation. What we need to be doing more is getting people to think, what does the regulation really mean? Not, not, right. uh, not what does the word say, but what is the intent? of the regulations. You know, it's, it's a really good point. And, you know, I like the design control tie-in here because, you know, really there's a strong relationship between usability and design validation. Design validation is all about uh, ensuring that the, the product that you've designed and developed uh, meets the needs of the end user. And to your point, Mike, the quote, end user it might be the patient, it might be the clinician, uh, could be uh, the reprocessing firm that's taking the product that, and getting it ready and fit for another use. So lots of different end users that uh, need to be addressed from a design control perspective. And it gets back to that concept of prudent engineering. You know, when I design the product and when I establish my requirements and I do the necessary testing and performance criteria on my product, I need to consider all of those end users. It's not just the doctor. It's not just the nurse. That's exactly right, John. And uh, not to be nitpicky, but I hear many people, they describe or they think of usability in terms of the ability to, of the, the physician or whoever the user is to use the device. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, that's not good enough. That's too right. simple. Right. Um, I would put a caveat on that. Use the device in the way that the engineer or the designer intended it to be used. Yes. And the reason why I mention that is because there are there have been a number of medical devices. I have three or four case study examples that I use in my training and in my teaching where the device worked perfectly fine when it was used the way that the engineers intended it to be used. But the way that the engineers intended it to be used was not the way that the physicians or the surgeons actually used it. And as a result, it ca they caused problems. Mm -hmm. And in those three or four cases, all of those devices were taken off the market. So yeah. usability needs to be thought of, in my, in, 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 in my opinion, in a real-world sense. You know, people yeah. talk today about real-world evidence. Well, how about real-world usability testing? Right. I mean, it's, it's really, I've been that engineer who, uh, I'll admit this, that uh, once upon a time, you know, I, I'm like, you know, I'm an engineer, I'm a smart person going to design and develop this product. But 
you know, I, I knew enough about the practice of medicine to be dangerous. And I made a lot of assumptions like, oh, well, you know, the clearly these are the steps that one would go through to use this product. And, you know, I've got these handy dandy instructions for use that I'm going to include with every single device that I provide. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, you put it in the hands of a trained physician and, you know, it wasn't used exactly the way I thought. So, you know, that was a, a process that I went through that I learned the hard way. Fortunately, you know, no one got hurt and there was no injuries, but I learned, hey, bring that end user in sooner into my process. You know, even if I have a rough proof of concept prototype, you know, get get real world opinion, see, put the product in the person's hands and, and have them go through some simulated activities to, to, to really learn from that. I think that's a real important aspect of usability. I could not agree with you more, John. I think you're, you know, you're very much preaching to the choir and you and I have learned these lessons over the many years we've been playing this game. Um, this is one of the reasons why we do these podcasts to share with right. the audience, especially for those that haven't had quite the experience yet that we have, so that they can kind of learn from our mistakes. But let's use this as an opportunity to tie in the relationship between risk and usability. Absolutely. This, I think, and you, you use the phrase instructions for use, or uh-huh. what I what I prefer to call directions for use, which is the low-level labeling. In the many companies that I've worked with over the years, when it comes to either risk management plans for design controls or risk mitigation strategies for regulatory submissions, rarely ever have I seen in their risk analysis the risk of the user, let's assume it's a surgeon, for example, the risk of the user not following the directions for use. Right. And let me give you one not so hypothetical scenario. Recently, I was at a conference and just coincidentally, the person that was speaking at the conference before me was talking about usability testing, usability studies. Okay. And she said that one of the criteria in her usability study was that the surgeon had to read and follow the directions. Oh, no. And I raised my (laughs) hand, you know how I am, John, because I wanted to get a discussion going here. I said, well, you realize that you have now totally invalidated your usability study because we all know that the vast majority of people never read any of that stuff. Yeah. And she said, yes, you're right, but it passed mustard at the FDA. (laughs) So now we get to the fundamental question of, okay, we're doing usability studies, but how realistic are they? In my opinion, just like a clinical trial or any other kind of test for that matter, if it's not realistic, then why are we wasting our time and money doing it? No, it's a a funny story because I think so many product developers may take a similar approach. And, you know, don't, don't mishear us, folks, that there still is importance in having those directions for use with your product. But the point that, that Mike is illustrating here is it should, it should be, I mean, best case scenario, it should be obvious when you put your product in the hands of a, of a, a user who more or less what they need to do and how they need to do it. You know, if it's a, if it's a, a medical device that's going to be put inside the body, you know, obviously there's an expectation that you're working with a trained physician. If it's a home use device, you have to figure out, you know, does somebody know which buttons to push and in what order and, and consider that they may not have or ever read those directions for use. I mean, I, I'm an engineer. I'm a smart guy. Uh, Mike, I know you're a smart guy. Whenever 
I purchased something that requires some assembly, I'll, I'll admit, I rarely read those directions for use. I think that I can I never do, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, As a matter of fact, perhaps, perhaps I shouldn't admit this on a recording that's going to be going out to you know many, many people. But as a PhD in engineering myself, my philosophy is if I have to read the instructions on a product, <laughs> some engineer has not done their job. Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a valid point. And I, I think that's even, even a more important twist or, or aspect of risk management uh, um, specifically, uh, ISO 14971, there was a version that came out in Europe a few years ago, EN ISO 14971-2012. And one of the interesting things about that version of the, the 14971 standard was on this topic of labeling and, and instructions for use that you cannot use that as a risk mitigation strategy uh, to, to reduce and lower risk. The, the explanation is that labeling and instructions for use and directions for use, that's expected to be part of your product, but those labeling cannot be used as a risk mitigation strategy. And I think sometimes we fall back on that and sometimes we expect that, hey, somebody's going to read these directions for use and they're going to know how to use our product. And I think that's where if we're doing prudent engineering and good risk management, that we would identify these things as issues that we need to address. Well, you're exactly right, John. And that is, in fact, one of the things that the ISO approach to risk says, that you cannot mitigate risk via labeling. I think personally, that's an oversimplification. Part of this depends on your definition of risk, which as we've talked about before, yeah. in my world is much, much broader than most other people's. But I'll be honest with you, one of my favorite ways to mitigate risk is via labeling because it, other than spending a few minutes of time and wordsmithing, it doesn't cost anything. Sure. So here's what I would modify that ISO to mean. Mitigating risk via, via labeling should not be our primary mitigation measure for that particular risk. Okay. There should, we, should do, uh, we should do all that we can to mitigate the risk in ways other than just simply labeling. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be my sort of two bits on that one. But there's okay. one other aspect of, of risk and usability that I wanted to tie into here, John, because it's not something that a lot of regulatory folks think about. It is something that engineers should think about, and that is the relationship between usability and product liability. Sure. We just talked about, from a regulatory perspective, we can, although it's not desirable, mitigate risks from a, from a labeling perspective. But I can tell you when it comes to product liability, and I'm extremely fortunate, a small but actually growing part of my business is doing expert witness testimony for medical device product liability cases, including a couple of very, very high profile ones right now. Attorneys, a good product liability attorney has a field day. You know, you don't have to have a JD from Harvard Law after your name to appreciate that you could easily make a case for liability if the usability was, you know, contingent on the physician reading the instructions or something like that. Sure, sure. So, so one of the takeaway messages for your audience here, I think, is, for me anyway, is usability testing is obviously very important. As we've both said, it's, it's basic engineering, it's prudent engineering. But I want to do what I call real-world usability testing, and I do not make the assumption, with all due respect to my many friends at FDA and the other regulatory agencies around the world, I do not make the assumption 
that just because my usability study passes mustard at FDA or or, or Health Canada or somewhere else means that it's a good or a realistic study. Yeah. I do not make that assumption. And so what I like to do, many companies are leery of doing this, obviously, is put the device in the hands of the user for the very first time and don't say or do anything and watch exactly how they use the product. Right. And if one of the things, one of the first things they do is they pull the DFU out of the box and read it, then note that down in your usability study. But if one of the first things they do is pull that DFU out of your box and throw it in the trash, <laughs> then you should note that down yeah. as well. Right. <laughs> and now we have to be a little careful because if we design a usability study to be truly realistic, as I just discussed, now we get into the possibility of, well, if they start using our product in a way that it was not intended, is that off-label use? And now we're, we're talking about collecting usability data potentially to submit to the FDA for off-label use. Believe me, this is a complicated issue, but sure. simply put, I think there are better ways that we can that we can uh, skin this proverbial cat than we're doing today. Sure, for and you know absolutely, and you know bringing in this this concept of risk, you know, as as Mike suggests, putting that product in the hands of the end user and and really just being in observation mode is important. And you know, with that being said, you know, as a product developer, a product medical device uh, designer, you don't want to wait until the very end to learn these things. Uh, you know, you don't want to be at the point where, you know, you're, you're two weeks away from a 510K submission, for example, and put the product in the hands of the end user and learn that, oh, wow, uh, this is not being used the way we thought it was going to be used. This is the benefit of doing some prototyping earlier in your process and making some concept designs and so on and so forth and and really getting that end user whether it's a doctor or a patient themselves involved in your process because that's going to help drive and influence what you do from a design and development perspective and it really is really an important aspect of how risk management gets integrated and infused as part of your design and development process as well as the usability. Once again, John, that's an excellent point. I could not agree more. And one of the last things I, I, I would like to bring up here before we start to wrap this up is, and I hinted at this earlier, it's one thing to talk about the importance of usability testing for devices that are being used by trained medical professionals. In other words, mm -hmm. people that have graduated from medical school or nursing school or dental school or what have you. But it's quite another thing when you talk about usability for a device that's being used by the individual patient in, a, in an over-the-counter device or in a wellness product uh, or even in regulated devices that are intended to be used by the, the patient themselves. Right. Um, in those particular cases, I would argue that usability is even much more important mm -hmm. than in devices that are going to be used by trained medical professionals. Because at least somebody who has gone to medical school, you know, you would like to think 
that they know what they're doing, although that's a huge assumption. You know, somebody that, you know, I used to teach medical school myself back in the day, I was constantly reminded of the old joke, what do you, what do you call the person that graduates <laughs> last in their class in medical school? You, you call <laughs> them doctor. You call doctor. them doctor. <laughs> that's right. You call them doctor. Uh, you know, the same thing can be said about uh, about attorneys and about engineers and about of regulatory course. professionals. Of course. So, so usability in OTC devices, in wellness devices, in devices that are going to be used by an untrained professional, that, in my opinion, is infinitely more important. And one more time, coming back to risk, I think that has to be tied into your risk mitigation strategy. Absolutely. Um, they, 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 as a matter of fact, as, as, as you know, John, as we've talked about before, I spend a lot of my professional time helping companies going through the pre-submission or the pre-sub process. When we prepare the pre-sub package to submit to the FDA prior to the actual meeting, one of the last things that we do is we go through and we establish links, hyperlinks throughout the documents. And the number of links that we're creating in the last, you know, dozen or more pre-sub packages that I've been involved in putting together is just amazing. The number yeah. of links between usability and the testing matrix and risk mitigation, because everything is interrelated. Everything Absolutely. depends on everything else. Absolutely. And, you know, Mike, that's a big part of why we exist at Guru because, you know, you got to keep all of this information connected throughout the entire design and development process you know, being able to trace how your user needs relate to your design inputs and your design outputs and verification and validation and usability and risk management and ultimately, you know, what you're going to be compiling in some sort of submission or technical file, being able to tell that story clearly and succinctly with clear objective evidence and demonstrating your prudent engineering is so, so important. So if this is something that you want a little bit of help with, I do encourage you to go to greenlight.guru and learn a lot more about what it is that we do. And, you know, if you want to reach out to us, click the button and we'll be happy to give you a ring and, and help answer all the questions that you might have. Also, Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences, uh, this is what Mike does for a living. So, you know, anytime you have questions, reach out to him. It's pretty easy to find on the internet. If, if you type in Mike Drew's, D-R-U-E-S, you'll be able to find his wonderful content and work all over the place in this industry. You can find him on LinkedIn as well, but Mike's happy to, to, uh, connect with you and and have a a conversation. Speaking of uh, conversations with Mike and with John, be sure to to check us out here in a, um, well, I guess it's right around the corner, Mike, MDM East. We're both going to be part of the design control topic that uh, track at the MDM East show in New York in June. I'm looking forward to connecting with you again face-to-face. Should be a good time. Thank you, John. I look forward to seeing you as well. And for anybody in the audience who's listening, who happens to be at the show in New York, please do come up and introduce yourself to John and I. It's amazing to me, John, how many um, followers we're we're gaining now as a result of this podcast series. So I think that's terrific. And, you know, I just want to thank you again for all of your kind words and the opportunity to, to have this discussion. It's a very important and a very timely topic. 
usability and specifically the intersection between usability and risk management and design controls and so on. And like many of the discussions that we've had, we've talked about some great things, but this is just scratching the surface. You got it, Mike. there, there, there's a lot more meat on these bones that, <laughs> that, uh, that, that we haven't uh, got to. And I look forward to discussing you know, more of that as, as we continue in the future. Absolutely. And folks, you're right, or Mike's right. This is uh, the number one medical device podcast in the world. So tell your friends, they should be listening to this as well. And Mike, thank you again for being the guest. And this has been John Spear, the host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight.Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.